Would you stand with me as we read, please? For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church in, in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. I'm very fond of this passage, so I'm excited that we get to explore it uh, together this morning. Paul begins by saying, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Well, for what reason is Paul speaking? Last week we saw that Paul is moved by the mystery of Christ, and the mystery that is, uh, of God that is revealed in Christ is the inclusion of the Gentiles. And it's not simply the inclusion of the Gentiles, but it's that the Gentiles are included in an unexpected way. Not simply that God has gone and conquered them and they bring their tribute to Jerusalem, but that Christ uh, has come and has died. And as a result of his death and resurrection, this good news of God's love in Jesus goes out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And this is how the mystery has been revealed. It was unexpected. It wasn't set forth. Paul says, now to the apostles and to himself the mystery has been made known, and he is called specifically to make it known. And as a result of just thinking about and dwelling upon what God has done in Christ Jesus, this mystery that has been unveiled, Paul falls down on his knees. Before the Father. It's, the language here isn't such that he simply takes a knee like a football player. The language is that he's on his knees and his face is pressed down to the ground and his hands and arms are outstretched in front of him so that it's a posture of abject humility before God. He's moved to complete worship by virtue of what God has done in Christ. As you think about the works of God, as you think about the mystery that is revealed in Christ Jesus, do you find yourself face down? Arms outstretched, a position of abject humility. No? I don't find myself in that position as many times as I'd like either. So where does Paul understand what moves him in a way that we don't grasp? This is exactly what Paul goes on to explain in, uh, in this prayer. Paul, as he's kneeling, he goes to the Father and he begins to pray for the church in Ephesus. And it's one of the most beautiful prayers in all of the New Testament. It's a prayer that, that we should be praying for ourselves often. It's a prayer that you should be praying for one another often. And so what does Paul grasp that moves him so deeply? And what can we learn from it? Let's consider his prayer. 
In verse 16, he says that according to the riches of his glory, meaning that what he's asking for comes from the person of God himself, poured out from the storehouse of God's own glory. Well, what is being poured out? First, that the church would be strengthened with power through his spirit and their inner being. And secondly, in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Two things. First, that the church would be strengthened in their inner being by the Spirit. Secondly, that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. Now, the so that, most commentators think that's not really the best way to render that in English because it makes it sound as if uh, being in, uh, strengthened by the Spirit has to precede the dwelling of Christ in your heart. That's not really what Paul is saying. Paul is saying the same thing really two different ways, or it's two sides of the same coin. To have the Spirit strengthening your inner being is to have Christ dwelling in your heart. And to have Christ dwelling in your heart is to have the Spirit strengthening your inner being. These things go hand in hand. This raises a number of issues that are a few things that need to be said before we move on. This is the kind of passage where we get the notion of asking Jesus into our hearts. Where we have oversimplified what Paul is saying. We've been reductionistic. We've reduced it to something that is too simple. And uh, really doesn't get the idea of what Paul is trying to express. In some ways, it sometimes sounds like we think that all someone has to do is say, Jesus, please move into my heart. And Jesus sets up a one-bedroom apartment and likes to land there whenever he's coming around. Right? That, that's not what Paul is after. That's a very Western, very individualized notion of Christ dwelling in us. And we all have to, also have to take note that Paul will much more frequently talk about uh, us being in Christ than Christ being in us. But at the same time, right, we have to remember that Paul will also say that as a result of faith, the Godhead takes residence in you. Right? The God, His Spirit, that Christ Himself dwells in you, which is so remarkable and so astounding, one can hardly fathom it. But then in you, the, the voice, the, the sense of that, the comfort, that the comforter dwells in you, that there is the voice of encouragement to righteousness, there is the voice of discouragement to sin. It is God himself taking up residence in you. To what end? Well, that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. If it's not this notion that Christ is just moving into your heart, what is the notion that Paul is describing? In the ancient world, uh, the heart is the seat of the affections. It is what drives the will. And from a biblical perspective, both from a Jewish perspective in the Old Testament and a perspective, a Christian perspective from the New Testament, the answer has always been, biblically, what drives a human being? It is the affections of the heart. And that's rather important because there are different answers all around us to that question. You know, people are always struggling with, if I ask the question, why do I do what I do? What drives a human being to act in the way that they do? There are many different answers. Over the centuries, some people have advocated, well, like every other animal, you operate out of fear and instinct to protect yourself. Others have said, no, we're not like the other animals. We're rational. We have a brain. And so we do things because we weigh things and we come to a particular conclusion and that's why we act. Others have said, no, we actually act simply out of our own built-in mechanism to procreate and to preserve our generations after us. 
The Bible has always said, no, you do what you want to do because your heart drives you. You do ultimately what you love. And if you honor Christ and are obedient to him, you do that because you love Christ. But if you pursue sin and follow after temptation, you do that because you love that thing. And you believe that thing will love you back. So what Paul is saying is that Christ would dwell in the hearts of the church in Ephesus. Is that Christ would so possess the affections of the church. That they would be following after him in faithfulness. That they would be captured by his love. And so be motivated by it. Okay. To what end? Well, Paul goes on. He says that you, being rooted and grounded in love. Christ dwell in your hearts, possessing your affection so that you will actually be rooted and grounded in love. Now, those are two pretty helpful metaphors. To be rooted is the notion of being a plant. And to grow as a plant, your roots have to be in good soil. And Paul is saying to grow, you have to be rooted in what? God's love. Or when he says to be grounded, it's actually an architectural metaphor. It's the idea of having a foundation upon which you can build. You could translate it as established. And so if you're going to be built up as the building that God intends you to be, where does your foundation have to be? In the love of God. This is Paul's starting point. He's he's passionately praying for the church in Ephesus, and he desires that they would be utterly rooted and utterly grounded in the love of God. All well and good. Why? Why? Paul goes on in verse 18, so that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now this is actually a pretty fantastic and surprising statement because uh, remember that Paul has just prayed that the church in Ephesus would be rooted and grounded in God's love. Well, toward what purpose? So that you will be strengthened. Why do you need to be strengthened? So that you will comprehend what? The love of Christ. In other words, Paul is saying that you must be rooted and grounded in God's love in order to be strengthened, in order then to understand the love of Christ. You must exist and be moved and be established in love in order to grow in love, to understand more of God's love. It's really kind of a fascinating concept. And what a, what a curious uh, verb, strengthened. But Paul holds out that you actually, as you're growing, as you're being transformed, you have to be strengthened in order to receive love because receiving love isn't easy. Particularly receiving Christ's love is not easy. To really receive the kind of love that's being talked about here, agape love, which is unconditional love, puts the recipient in a very vulnerable position. You know this because it's often our default that anytime someone loves us or we receive some love, you know, even, even from your spouse, you might think, uh, or what you often think is, oh, I need, I need to pay that back. You've done something loving towards me, now I need to do something loving in return. What is it about us that doesn't like to simply receive love? Why does that make us feel so vulnerable? Why do we prefer to be on the giving end rather than the receiving end? The place where Paul gets to at the very end is if if you've been rooted and grounded in love and thus have been strengthened to understand, to comprehend 
Christ's love, which interestingly he, he places, he says in a way that is, is what we would call oxymoronic. He says, uh, so that you can comprehend the love of Christ, which is what? It surpasses knowledge. So that you would know what is unknowable. Right? It's this thing that you're never going to actually get a hold of, but it is the very thing that will feed your soul and make you whole. And so, uh, as a result, this is why what Paul can say in verse 19 at the end is that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Right? What a remarkable statement that you would know to be filled with the fullness of God. Well, do you feel full with the fullness of God this morning? A little leaky, perhaps? We're not quite as filled as you would hope to be? Right? I think we would all acknowledge that to some extent. So, what does that mean? Well, if we were to work backwards, right, we, may, we may realize that something's gone wrong. If, see, if Paul is actually holding out and praying that the Ephesian church can be filled with all the fullness of God and they're not, then, uh, then do we believe that it's possible? Because really there's only, if we're not experiencing it, there are really only three options. God's a liar, or Paul's a liar, or we somehow inhibit this process. Right? So I'm not going to take one or two too seriously because I don't think they're good bets. I think it's a much better bet that we inhibit the process in some capacity. So how do we inhibit ourselves from actually being filled with the fullness of God? Well, if we back up, we realize that we're not going to be filled with the fullness of God if we haven't comprehended the love of Christ. We won't comprehend the love of Christ if we haven't been strengthened. And we're not going to be strengthened if we haven't been grounded and rooted in the love of God in the first place. So the question then becomes, what inhibits us from actually receiving God's love? What prevents us from actually experiencing God's love in such a way that it moves us deeper and deeper into that love? And as I said earlier, experiencing love, particularly from God, is a very difficult thing. We prefer to think that we have things under control and that we aren't so needy as to need such deep and ravishing love that God has on offer. So why, why would we be reluctant to receive God's love? Well, Boys and girls, you know this better than you think you do. Uh, reason number one is that we simply don't like the love that we're getting. Right? Boys and girls, sometimes your mommies and your daddies ask you to do things that you're not excited about. Right? Lately in my house, it's been uh, brush your teeth and go to bed on time. And there's a great revolt. Like, no, I brushed my teeth three weeks ago. It is enough. <laughs> And uh, I'm old enough to decide my bedtime. You don't need to tell me when to go to bed. I'm not tired, right? And of course, am I a monster? Right? No. I'm committed to my children keeping their teeth. And I'm committed to my children getting a good night's rest so that they aren't monsters. But that's not what they want to experience in that given moment. That's an expression of love that they don't appreciate. It doesn't come across to them as love at all. And boys and girls, in the same way that you would rail against your parents, your mommies and daddies, all of us rail against God. Right? When he gives us part of his story, when his love takes on some demonstration that we don't like. I used to love to run. I ran all through high school. I ran through college. I ran through my 20s. And, and then I, I tore my, uh, my patellar tendon. And I have an autoimmune condition that ate up a lot of good cartilage in my right hip. And so I did, I'm not very mobile. It hurts to get up and down stairs. So how do I respond? Do I shake my fist 
And say, God, you know, I'm trying to do some things for your kingdom. I'm, I'm a, you know, throw me a bone. Running isn't exactly like the worst endeavor, right? Why would you take that away from me? Or I can say, God, I believe and trust in your love. And even though I don't understand why this is taken away, I believe that it's good for me. I'm reminded that my instructions to my kids about brushing their teeth is pretty healthy. And so perhaps by taking away this from me, you're doing something healthy for me that I can't understand. But this is option one, where we, 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 we back away. We separate from the love of God because it simply introduces us an express, to us an expression of love that we don't like. And so we, we move away. Now, reason number two is similar, but it's a little bit different. It's a lot deeper. And in some ways, it's the biggest problem of all. It's the problem of, uh, particularly of, of having believed in God as Father and confessed that He is loving, but having experienced something that is very difficult to reconcile with His love. Uh, in the early 90s, there was a boy who went by the name Badger, Badger Stewart. And he became very, very sick, very ill as a young boy. It was very puzzling to the doctors. They had to run all kinds of studies, and they couldn't figure out what he was suffering from. And so the test got more and more extreme, and eventually he was diagnosed with AIDS. They said, <clears throat> we know this diagnosis is right, but we don't, it's really puzzling because we can't figure out how he contracted the disease. And so they examined all of his relationships, and he hadn't had any blood transfusions, and this is a, a, really a great mystery. And so as the story continues to unfold, uh, 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 Badger's father uh, would play a role. His name is Brian Stewart, and he was, um, he's a mean guy. And he went, did tour in Desert Storm and came home and met this woman and got into a relationship, and Badger was born. But the things didn't go well with the mother and father. Uh, he was a mean man. And eventually, Badger's mother decided that she had to leave and... Uh, at the time, he said, okay, well, I'm going to make you pay, and I don't leave any loose ends that aren't tied up. Now, Badger's dad uh, was a phlebotomist. He drew blood for a living. And to make a long story short, Badger was once in the hospital he worked in for something totally unrelated, just being sick as a kid. And his dad came in and said goodbye to him and injected him with HIV and left. And he would eventually be tried and... Uh, Condemned, a condemned man serving a life sentence in a maximum security prison. And to get you, you know, there's a lot to the story, but to, just to give you a sense of kind of a conclusion, or at least a, a sense of what we're talking about, this is, these are the judge's words at sentencing, which, of course, Badger, who was fully expected to die, right? HIV in the early 90s was his death sentence. Uh, he barely makes it long enough to, for the vi- antiviral drugs to be uh, developed that he will eventually live. But he's too sick to even go to the court. And the judge said upon uh, sentencing, I believe that when God finally calls you, you are going to burn in hell from here to eternity. And maybe that's the only justice that will come to this when you are finally gone, the judge said. My thought that is injecting a 10-month-old child with the AIDS virus really puts you in the same category as a war criminal and the worst war criminal. He went on, the maximum I can do with you is life in prison. I don't really think that is very, a very fair sentence, not with what your son is going to have to go through. He is going to die. We all know that. 
Now, Badger did indeed live and, and goes on to live a pretty remarkable life. But, you know, this notion of um, how do you even make sense of a story like that? It's insane. That a father would be so, um, would have that disposition towards his own child, right? To actually do that. And you think it's crazy and you start to think about it, but then you start to think, you know, there are some resonances in terms of uh, you were born into a world that is contaminated by sin. It's poisoned. And you didn't have anything to do with the inception of that sin. And you're born into a sentence to die. Right? The day you, you're born. So all of a sudden, and granted there are differences, and I'm, I'm going to try to be very careful here. But there are parts of the Badger story that resonates with our story. Now, this is the part that's uncomfortable because, and this is true particularly of those of you who have suffered, who have suffered dramatically, who have suffered abuse as children, who have suffered through terrible marriages, who have suffered uh, unspeakable tragedies. I think of of, uh, our friends, the Woodfins who lost Cable, Caleb to a brain hemorrhage. I think of Nathan's co-workers, whose son has been sentenced to a terminal nervous condition in which he will gradually lose all of his senses and then die. What I'm trying to point up is that there is a tension between you know, going to Paul and reading, Paul saying, uh, be rooted and grounded in the love of God, and then saying, what I've experienced of the love of God is not safe. In fact, I really, it's beyond my capability to, to reconcile it with any notion of love. There's the reality that God has permitted certain things in this world and perhaps in your life that you would do everything in your power to prevent from happening to your own child. And as a result of that, uh, there is, there's anger, there's frustration. Both Jeremiah and Paul say that we. We are born haters of God. And I think that's true, and I don't think that simply dissipates at the moment of salvation. And I've I've spoken at various times about about engaging your anger. And please don't hear me as saying that you you have some right to rail against God or petition against Him. What I'm saying to you is simply by default of the inherent tension between God who expresses Himself as love and what He permits to happen, you are angry. You are frustrated. And if you are unwilling to engage and to at least um, acknowledge that anger and frustration, then you are unwilling to enter into any real kind of relationship with God. Right? Because you're, you're, you're saying, no, I'm not going to go there. I'm not really going to voice this anger and frustration. And, so, and I'm just going to go on and say, Jesus is great, and I love him very much, and I'm going to try to be obedient, and I'm going to be very busy. And really what you, you're facilitating and kind of pretending where you're keeping yourself just busy enough and just distracted enough to not really engage your own heart, and that prevents you from being rooted and grounded in God's love because you don't think His love is safe. Again, this is a, a very problematic place to be uh, when you're called to be rooted and grounded in the love of God. The, I, friends, I don't know another way pastorally. If you are unwill, if you are angry and frustrated over His love and the way that is played out, and you are unwilling to engage that, 
then you're unwilling to receive his love. You don't believe in it. You don't have hope that it will somehow transcend your frustration. And to stay in that place is to, is to limit yourself and to prevent yourself from every being rooted and grounded, which is just the first step to then be strengthened to comprehend the love of Christ. Third way that we are inhibited from being rooted and grounded in God's love and receiving that love is for those of you who have experienced significant shame. Shame is, um, is usually related not to something we do, but something that's done to us. And we feel dirty as a result. We, uh, we have the sense that we would like to hide. And you may have that sense when you commune with God or think about communing with God. Say, I would prefer to hide. I would prefer not to be seen. I don't think I'm lovable in this way. And of course, a fourth way that we avoid the love of God is through our guilt. Where this guilt, as opposed to shame, is usually related to something that you have done. Something that you feel responsible for. Something that you say to yourself, well, yes, I can commune with God and receive His love just as soon as I undo what I've done. If I do, you know, I did A and A was bad, so if I do B, C, and D, which are good, I'll make up for A, and then I'll be in good standing again with God. And you seek to atone for your own guilt. And, of course, you're trying to offer yourself some some version of love that ultimately will never give you what you need. These are four different ways that we can inhibit receiving and being found in the love of God. And when that happens, it inhibits us from experiencing the deeper and deeper love that is expressed in Christ. So what, what is the remedy? What is, what is the answer? How do we possess, how do we experience more of the love of Christ? Well, it is in these places, and you have to ask yourself, which, you know, what really is your story? Some combination of them, all of them, something that I have not mentioned. Right? What inhibits you? And for those, those of you who simply don't like the love that God is expressing, and you, you get frustrated with Him, Remember in that frustration that Jesus hangs on the cross and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. His love is is bigger than your frustration. And for those of you who simply are so wounded by your stories, you say, His love isn't safe. And I'm fearful of moving into that love. Remember that He is also the God who works even out of death resurrection. Remember that Badger's story is true for the Son of God more than for anyone else. Right? God poisons His Son with the sin of the world that you might be redeemed. For those of you who struggle with shame, you need to remember that it is the love of Christ that makes prostitutes princesses. And for those of you who are racked by guilt, For things that you feel like you must atone for, remember that it is the love of Christ that says to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to your house, even though Zacchaeus had much guilt and much to atone for. The love of Christ beckons us to be healed, beckons us to be repaired, beckons us to be made whole. But you must ask yourself, what inhibits you from being rooted and grounded in God's love? What prevents it? What keeps you from moving in that path? 
This beautiful prayer. What would Paul pray about your life? That you would experience more of the strengthening that comes with knowing the love that is ennobled. And a few of you are probably saying, yeah, there's nothing. I'm pretty good. There's nothing really in my life that inhibits me from, uh, from knowing the love of God and being rooted and grounded in that love. Okay. Uh, and you may be at a different place in lives, but there's something that prevents it. Friends, we are incredibly complex beings, and there is much that gets in the way of us receiving love. And I firmly believe that our enemy is very busy about helping us in every way that he can not to be rooted and grounded in God's love. And if you think that you are above everything that we have talked about and that prayer is not something that you really require, I would challenge you to ask the question, do you have much more in common with the Pharisees than you think? We come to the table this morning to receive the profound love of Christ. And in order to do that, if we really understand what we've talked about today, we can end only as Paul has ended. Will you pray with me? Now to you, our Father, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to you, our Father, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.